Preston Times, live from 710 Keel Studios in Shreveport, Louisiana, celebrating age and maturity, helping you make the best years of your life the best they can be. The best of times. Your host, Gary Kaligas. Good morning, Architects listeners. I'm Gary Kaligas, the publisher of The Best of Times, the only magazine for mature adults in Northwest Louisiana. Thank you for tuning in to our show, and also thanking those who might be listening via the internet at www.710keel.com. Also thanking those who might be listening via the Radio Pup application on their Apple and Android devices. In just a few minutes, we're going to learn about a soon-to-be-released historical suspense novel titled The Malta Exchange. It is by internationally known author and historian Steve Barry. So stay to this show for some very interesting information about this new novel. It is Saturday, March the 9th, and we are broadcasting our radio show from the studios of News Radio 710 Keel, a town square media station here in Shreveport, Louisiana. However, today's show has been pre-recorded, so we will be unable to accept call-in questions and comments from our loyal radio listeners. Be sure to pick up the March issue of the Best of Times in one of our... 522 distribution locations. We do thank you for picking up our magazine, and we do appreciate hearing from you about our magazine and its contents. If you're unable to find a copy, remember, you can always visit our website at www.thebestoftimesnews.com to view both current and past issues, to listen to previously broadcast radio shows of the Best of Times, also to uh, view and download the current issue of the 2019 Silver Pages Senior Resource Directory. Yes, the Silver Pages was released on March the 1st, and it is available at many of our distribution locations as well as our March issue. This is a new and updated resource publication. It's our most popular document with our readers, and it's kept for many, many years. It is, of course, all always viewable and downloadable from our website. Make plans to attend the End of Life Planning Expo, which will take place on Saturday, March the 23rd, from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. in the ballroom at Diamond Jacks Casino and Resort in Bossier City. This expo is primarily for seniors, boomers, and their family members to enable them to learn about advanced planning, advanced directive, wills, trust, other legal decisions, counseling services, hospice care services, pre-planning, funeral arrangements, and funeral services. Attendees will learn how to access these services to assist them for the numerous exhibitors that will be participating in this expo. This expo is proudly sponsored by the Best of Times and AERP of Louisiana. Of course, free admission, free parking, many educational presentations, door prize drawings, and of course, the distribution of our 2019 Silver Pages. In addition, at 9 a.m., I will be doing a remote broadcast of this show, the Best of Times Radio Hour, from the ballroom. And uh, I will have many guests, uh, interview many guests there about about the issues of end of life to educate our audience listeners as well as you, the loyal radio listeners of the Best of Times. So remember, make plans to attend this free Expo, the End of Life Planning Expo, Saturday, March the 23rd at Diamond Jacks Casino in Bossier City's in Bossier City from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. 
Remember, do visit our website at www.thebestoftimesnews.com for a listing of announcements made during this radio show, as well as information about upcoming events, activities, and news that you can use. We'll be right back with more information, but now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel, probably presented by Abares, Tending Country S. Report, your Dodge Chrysler Ram and Jeep dealer. Gary's got more of the Best of Times coming for you on 710 Keel. Now, back to the Best of Times with your host, Gary Coligas. Welcome back to our show, the Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly presented by A-Bears, Tenant Country of Shreveport, your Dodge Chrysler Ram and Jeep dealer. I'm Gary Coligas, and I do thank you for listening to our show today. Joining me on my show is a very special guest, is internationally known author, lecturer, and historian, Mr. Steve Barry, who will be discussing his new novel, The Malta Exchange, which was just released on March the 5th. Thank you, Steve, for joining us today. Here on the Best of Times Radio Hour. Good to be here. Thank you. Steve, I'm sure you've been having a fantastically busy schedule, right? Oh, yeah. You're always busy. A lot going on. A lot of, that's, that's good. And you and your wife, Elizabeth, doing well? Doing great. Doing great. Well, thank again. you for asking. Well, thank you for joining us today. This has been your 10th consecutive year on my radio show to discuss your your historical novels. So I'm I'm, wow. really, I'm really proud that uh, you take the time and effort. I know you got a busy schedule and being interviewed by all those fancy people and that, uh, throughout the world. But uh, we appreciate you in Northwest Louisiana and the best of times radio hour to be on that. And I will I will tell you that your radio shows that you've been on the from ten years this will be a, this will be the tenth year uh, are one of the top loaded downloaded shows on my website. For previously broadcast nice ra- for Thank broadcast you. radio show, it's in the thousands, five or six thousand per show. So they could be in Nova Scotia and Canada. I don't know where they when they download them. Where they doesn't tell me where they're from. They just gives me a counter and says that show was downloaded and listened to, Mr. Caligas. I said, well, thank you very much. So, again, thank you for taking the time to come here. And I, I'm going to say this uh, to our listeners. I've read most of all of his books, uh, quite a few of them, and uh, they're, they're fantastic. You learn history. I know Steve will talk about his history, uh, uh, love, but he does love history, and his books show it, even though they're designed in a way, stay right, to be a little suspenseful, not to be boring history one. It's interesting history 101, right? Well, that's what we try to do, yeah. The object of the game is to entertain, so uh, we're trying to tell you a story that you have a fun time and enjoy, but uh, along the way, if you learn a little something, then that's great. Well, and that's what I, I told one of my um, lawyer friends yesterday. We were talking about you, and I said, how, he said, how did you find out about him? And I, I said, well, I've, I thought I'd seen his books, but I did pick up one book, and I was fascinated. I was 11 years ago. I picked up the Romanov prophecy, and I just read it because I was interested in, in that uh, Russian history. And, wow, it was it was interesting reading because I really don't like reading historical books, just pure history. But his, his made it go by real well. And I said, all of his books are that way. He, this, this gentleman said, well, I'm going to start picking up all the, those books, too. So he did. He did call me today and told me that, that he's, uh, he's already purchased a lot of them. Uh, uh, I don't know if he got them electronically. Or, or he's, he's, not a, he's a young guy, uh, younger than me. So he's probably going to get them all, your e-books and all the electronic um, Kindle books and all those kind of things. Uh, before we get into the book, I want you to give our listeners a little bit about your um, past experience. Because I, I think it's, it's fascinating. Uh, well, I was a lawyer for 30 years. And, uh, and what what type of lawyer? I was a trial lawyer. I did stuff in court. I did everyday stuff, too. I had small, it was just me. And, and, 
And what got you? What got you uh, interested? Were you always interested in history? Always read it. Yes, no, no question. I was a reader of history, but I didn't write my first word until I was thirty-five. But wow. from the time I wrote my first word to the time I sold my first word was twelve years. And there was eight manuscripts during that time. Five went to New York houses, rejected eighty-five times. So I Whoa. made it on the eighty-sixth time, twelve years after I started. And that was in 2003 with the Amber Room, and now we're 18 novels later. Wow, that, that's persistence. I mean, we talked about that on prior prior shows. I said that that you you've definitely got stamina there to to maintain that different type of editors and rejections and keep going. And if you don't succeed, you keep trying trying again, right? That's exactly right. I'm the I'm the poster child for you can do it, and it can happen to you. I hung I hung in there. Was something magical about me, one way or the other. The only thing I can say for myself is I hung in there, and I stayed there long enough until one day. I caught a break, you know, 12 years later, I caught a break one day, and I was able to get published and, and built on the books, and now, as I said, we're, we're on book 18 and going strong. Book 18, wow. That that's that is a remarkable feat, and and I congratulate you again. The other caveat that I think when I first read the Romanov prophecy, when I got when I got to the end, I says, "Wow, this is great of this author. He has editor's notes. Most 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 uh, most authors who write historical fictional novels don't have editor's notes, and that fascinated me tremendously. And uh, tell our listeners a little bit about that. Well, I. Well, I write the books. You know, I keep the books about 90% to history. That's the niche I've formed for myself. So my story takes, stays pretty tight to history. But I have to trip it up. It's a novel. I've got to entertain you. And that 10% is important. So I decided very early on to always have a writer's note at the back. And I spent a lot of time on that note. It takes me about a week to write it. And I go through every page of the book. And I go through everything. And I want you to know when you're done what's true, what's false, what's right, what's wrong. So when you leave there, you have a full understanding of it. So the, the writer's note is there to plug in those gaps at the end and get it all together for you where you kind of all come together. And uh, just don't read it first. It'll give away the whole book. But when you're done and read it, it'll, it'll tell you. The shocking thing is going to be is what you probably thought was false. Nine times out of ten is true. And that's wow. the fun part. And that is true. I, I, you know, I caution people when they read your read your novels. Do not read the editor's note yet. A lot of say, "Why, Gary?" He says, "Well, you you need to understand the whole concept of the book. Then, then you'll find the back which is which is true and which uh, Steve made up to to make it entertaining, right?" That's the whole. Yeah, I've got to entertain you. That's the whole object. I'm writing a novel, so it's, it's about entertaining you, but. My niche is to keep it close to reality as possible. That's what that makes it a little, little more difficult to produce my novel. That's why it takes 18 months to, to produce the novel from start to finish, because I do have to kind of keep it as close to reality as I can. But you've got to trip it up. You've got to have a little fun with it. And uh, that's, that's the whole idea. So when you, when you wrote The Amber Room, were you always interested in that topic? That that historical aspect of I always like action, history, secrets, and conspiracies. Absolutely, yes. That's what I read. I read action, history, secrets, conspiracies. Back then, they were called spy novels. Okay. Uh, in, the, in that time, but they, the spy novel went away in the nineties, and it came back in two thousand three with Da Vinci Code, and it came back as an international suspense thriller of action, history, secrets, conspiracies. So I was very fortunate that the one I was writing became very hot at that time. So I said, I caught a break. I caught a break 12 years after I started that what I was writing became popular once again. 
And it has been. It continues to be popular. And I, and I wish you the tremendous, tremendous good fortune. But again, your 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 books. When you everybody, I mention my listeners out there. When you start picking up and start reading, he catches you in the in the in the beginning of the book in the first chapter. And you want my? It's difficult to put it down, Steve. I can tell you that. Uh, it's difficult. Goal, I mean, it's the goal that we want to have. My wife Tina gets mad at me. She says it's time to go to bed. You can't read the whole thing in one evening. And that. that and, and even this one, Lamar. Yeah, she can. No, no, because <laughs> she, it's you know, I I want to digest it. I'm a slow reader. I, I I have to analyze, and sometimes I reread a whole chapter. Steve, I'm probably not as brilliant as you are, so I reread it and I digest and I, I ponder. My, I don't want to read the editor. I says, I wonder if this is true or not. And I'm I'm sitting there just having 14 questions, being the interviewer here, thinking, is that true or false? And I said, I just can't wait to get back to that editor's note to find out this. So I read it. I generally read it again. I said, you know, I've heard about that. And we'll talk about this book this time. It's, it's, we don't want to give all the secrets away. But, uh, but again, you're, you're, uh, it's remarkable. So one of my uh, listeners wanted me to ask you again. I've told, I've told the people. I said, you heard it on the show. He said, well, I want you to bring it up again. He says, well, why is this protagonist is Cotton Malone in most of all of his books and novels. Tell them why. Well, well we created a series, so it was why. I mean, I wrote three, I wrote three standalones, Amber Room, Romanoff Prophecy, Third Secret. Then I right. created the, uh, Cotton Malone in the Templar Legacy. There's one more standalone that came years later called The Columbus Affair. But other than that, the 14 of the 18 books are in the series. And we created him because, you know, we wanted a series character. We wanted to try to, it, it, it helps with, uh, you know, readership. It helps with marketing. It helps with a lot of things. And he's a retired Justice Department agent. He lives in Copenhagen. He runs an old bookshop. He gets in trouble all the time. And when I created him in 06 with the Templar exam, I mean, I wasn't arrogant enough to think, well, I'm going to get to write 14 books with this guy. <laughs> I was just hoping I could write one, you know, maybe two. With him, you do. But he caught on very quickly. The Templar Legacy remains my largest selling book to this day, so it's still very popular. And the books that came after each built on it, and the Cotton Malone world was created. And it's kept going, and it's changed, it's evolved, there's been a lot going on in that world. The great thing about it, though, is people should not be put off by 14 books. You do not have to read my books in order. It is not required. You can read them in any order you want. I've had people read them backwards even. It's fine. I write them so that if you read them in order, you might recognize something here and there. But if you did not read them in order, you wouldn't be irritated by that. So, uh, you know, you can pick up whatever book interests you. Each one deals with a different element of history from a different time. So, it's what interests you. You can pick it up and take a look at it. And that is true, a true statement, uh, because I did not follow his books in order when I first uh, found you 11 years ago. I, when I started reading some other ones, which were totally out of the order. And of course, Romanov Prophecy was one of, one of his standalone books, and that got me cooked. Then I started learning about some of his other books with Cotton Malone. So uh, it, it's it's fat. It's good to have a, a central character, the new Vaughn, that you can you can rec- recon- um, recognize and uh, deal with, and um, I'm partly saying proud. I wish I, I wish I could be him. Uh, sometimes I'm sure all of all of your readers have told you that, right? Well, that's the idea. I mean, you want you want the reader to become the protagonist. You want them to to come get in his shoes and his brain to become part of him. That's the that's the goal of the writer. So if you can get people to do that, it's great. And Cotton is popular because 
he's very ordinary in a lot of ways. He's not an extraordinary person in any way, but he can do extraordinary things when called upon. And he just people identify with him. They, they say, "I like him. I can see him. I can I can have dinner with him. I can I can talk with him." He's he's an interesting guy, and that's that's what you want. You want people to be able to become the protagonist of the story. And and some of the other characters you have in many of your books have, have followed through. I mean, I, I can remember Stephanie and Cassiopeia and et cetera. So, you know, you, you get to learn about them in, in one book, but you get to learn a little bit more about them occasionally in other books as well. Absolutely. And uh, so that that was fascinating. Though I love the central character who talked to Malone. I get to learn about some of the others in there and, and learn some of their intricacies and history and and uh, skeletons in their closet and et cetera. So uh, it's good to know that. And wh- one more thing, tell our listeners about your 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 nonprofit uh, division of History Matters that you do strongly feel that history does matters, right? Yeah. Yes, that's a, that's a foundation that my wife Elizabeth and I created in 2009. And we help raise money for historic preservation around the country. We do uh, all kinds of things, writers' workshops, galas, dinners. We've done about 75 projects to raise money for preservation, and we've raised about $1.3 million across wow. for that. So it's been, it's been quite gratifying. We still do, we used to do more, but now we do about two to three a year. We used to do five and six a year, but now about two to three a year, and uh, it's very nice to help. Well, it's taxing on you, but it's definitely beneficial for the community that you're helping in, in preserving nice. that history in that area, right? It's part of giving back. It's part of what we do. We enjoy uh, We enjoy the, the projects. They've been interesting. We've done all kinds of things, books, libraries, uh, cemeteries, buildings, um, gosh, you name it, we have raised money for it. Well, that, that that is fascinating. The other thing I want to tell listeners, he's heavily, in, heavily, bad word, uh, greatly involved with the Smithsonian, right? Hold that thought. We'll be right back with more information. But now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel, proudly presented by A Bears Town and Country of Shreveport, your Dodge Chrysler Ram and Jeep dealer. Gary's got more of the best of times coming for you on 710 Keel. Now, back to the best of times with your host, Gary Caligas. Welcome back to our show, the best of times radio hour, proudly presented by Hebert's Sending Country of Shreveport, your Dodge Chrysler Ram and Jeep dealer. I'm Gary Caligas, and I do thank you for listening to our show today. Joining me on my show as a special guest is internationally known author, lecturer, and historian, Mr. Steve Barry. He's discussing his new novel, The Malta Exchange, which has been released to the world on March the 5th and is now available via bookstores, Amazon, his site, Steve Berry, that's B-E-R-R-Y, SteveBerry.org. Thank you, Steve, for joining us today here on the Best of Times Radio Hour. Thank you for having me. So, um, wow, another very his- suspenseful novel. Took a, lot of, took a lot of research in this one, didn't it, Steve? Yes, it did. It's a normal. Uh, it was the six months of, of research that I did prior to starting the writing, uh, when I'm writing the book before. And then 12 months of research after. It also did, uh, there were trips to uh, Malta and to the northern Italy. So we made uh, you know, three trips for this novel. Uh, Malta is one of my favorite places in the world. I've been wanting to put it into a book for a long time. It just gave me the opportunity. Wow. Again, I will tell my listeners, I've already read the book. 
and novel, and it is fantastic. Uh, you need, need to pick up a copy. You can go to his website at steveberry.org, or you can go to our website, and, and uh, it, it, will, it will take you over there to his website. And, of course, it's available on Amazon and many other um, types of bookstore websites, et cetera. Right, Steve? Yes, it's all. You can get it any outlet. It's all formats. you got the hardcover, large print, uh, audio, download, e you name it, it's out there. All those different uh, fascinating formats for the different age groups, including those seniors and boomers like me as well, right? Uh, so what inspired you to write about the Knights of Malta? Well, they're pretty cool, actually. I mean, they're the last monodistic warrior monks left in the world. They were created 900 years ago. They survived. Uh, the Templars are gone. The Teutonic Knights are gone. All the other or- orders are gone. But the Knights of Malta are still here. They're headquartered in Rome in uh, two villas in Rome that are the smallest country in the world. Not the Vatican. That's the smallest country in the world. The Knights have almost have autonomous status by about 150 countries recognize them as a sovereign entity. They are now a worldwide humanitarian organization, but uh, I've given them a little more, a little more oomph. Uh, brought something back from their past, something that was real, and something that I incorporated into the novel. And uh, you're going to learn all about the Knights of Malta. They're quite interesting. They uh, are really quite interesting. But I, quite interesting. but I was fascinated, and I, I mean, I've been to Rome at least ten times, but probably never knew that bit of trivia. That they they have a sovereign nation within that area of, of those two particular palaces, whatever. So next time I go there, I'm going to check them out. Uh, can you go visit them? Can you go visit those two? I don't. Uh, yes, you can go to the one on Aventine Hill. Aventine. It's okay. actually pretty interesting up there because you can go to the outside of the area, and there's a door up there. Mm-hmm. And if you look through the keyhole of that, oh door, yeah, you mentioned that. Right through the keyhole, you will see the Vatican. Okay. It's very interesting that the door and that keyhole line up perfectly to the Vatican. Uh, and you know, some say that was intentional, some say it was not, but it's just a fascinating fact. Well, uh, and that was one of the things I kept reading. I said, God, I wonder if this is true or not. So uh, after I finished, I looked at the editor's notes, and uh, it definitely is valid, and I looked it up after that. And fascinating that we don't, you know, you know these little bits of trivia, little bits of historical facts that just like, wow, it, uh, it, was, it was fascinating. And you do, you, and you, you did mention, they, they have a lot of history about these knights. I mean, and one thing that I was fascinated, and I don't think I'll give away the story, is these knights really fought hard for Christianity, right? Yeah, they were warrior monks. I mean, that's what they were. They, but they also, the, the knights, at this time, they were the, back then, they were the hospitallers, is what they would have been called. Right. They had different names. They started out as the hospitallers, the knights of St. John, the knights of Rhodes, and then became the knights of Malta. And they ran hospices. They ran hospitals to take care of pilgrims to the, to the Holy Land. But they also protected those pilgrims, and they became you know, warrior monks as well. So, But their primary mission was providing medical care. They were on the cutting edge of that. There's a gigantic hospital in Malta that the Knights built in the 16th century that's still there. It's quite fascinating to tour and take a look at it. But, yeah, these were, these were warrior monks in, in every way, but they managed to survive to now, which is 
quite remarkable. It is remarkable. And the other aspect is uh, what I learned from your the book and is that uh, I, I I remember the uh, the Ottoman Empire was coming around that area and didn't they didn't didn't you mention and I think the historical said that the, the country of Malta uh, and these knights uh, stopped that particular movement yeah. going to Italy. Correct. It would have it would have actually um, altered the course of history if they had not. They were put on Malta to, to act as a protecting a protector for Europe. The uh, the Emperor uh, Charles V gave them Malta in return for a falcon every year. That was their rent. They had to provide him with a falcon each year. And, and But they were there to, to, to act as a, a first line of defense. The Turks invaded in 1565 and had a huge battle. A whole, just a horrendous war. And a small band of knights that, you know, was able to defeat and ward off the Turkish army, which never again attempted such, a, such an invasion. But if the Turks had won that, they would have controlled Malta. If you control Malta, you control the Mediterranean. And that would have been a bad thing for Europe, a really bad thing. Wow. So what in your book, what other interesting things did you find regarding the island of Malta? You mentioned a few of them here. Well, they, the, just the whole place. It's 12 miles long, 6 miles wide. It's a living history museum. It's like going back in the 16th century. You're, uh, the, the, the land, the, the Valletta is an incredible place with uh, uh, buildings built from that time period. It's a walled city. It's stunning to look at. Uh, you walk through it. You're, you're walking literally through history. The whole island goes back in to, to prehistoric times. There are sites there. Megalithic sites are there. Anything and everything is there. Uh, people have been there, you know, for you know, tens of thousands of years. The, there's watchtowers that guard the, the coast, which are quite remarkable, that are all in the novel. Uh, there's just a lot there. It's a great place to go visit. If, uh, if your viewers want to go to a place where there's beauty and history and all kinds of interesting things, uh, uh, a combination of east and west coming together, that's a good place to go. That's a fascinating. I mean, you've, you've touched my wife and I. So we're, we're definitely going to consider going there uh, uh, in our next trip to um, to Europe. Of course, it's nearby. It's near Italy, so it's not too far. I'm sure. I don't think they've got direct flights into Malta, but from the the states. But probably no, no. Gonna... You have to fly to Europe, and then you go down on Air Malta. The only way to get there is that. So you just go into Paris or Rome or Amsterdam, and you can fly down. So, what other th- what other aspect of the book? I'm going to mention to our listeners. I don't want you to get away too much about the, about this particular novel, but I thought it was fascinating where Cotton Malone has to have a bear fight. This is a bear, like bear bear. I thought that was that was fascinating. It was new challenges I'm, I'm, for him. How did you well, come up with that one? Some, I had to find something unique, something different. I mean, you know, after you know, 14 books, you got <laughs> bury it up a little bit. So uh, I had a little. A little wildlife, a little encounter with the local wildlife that I thought was fun. It made for a fun opening scene. It did. It did. It caught my attention. I said, what? A bear? I said, how did he come up with this? I mean, that, that was the protagonist there. I mean, both of them are going head-to-head to each other, right? They were very fascinating. Yeah, it was, it was fun. Uh, it was fun. And also, we'll, we'll tell our listeners, this book blends in a little bit of, of the British statesman Winston Churchill and in the and the dictator Mussolini, right? Well, there's a, there's a, there's a, a legend, if you will, a myth, that there was correspondence between Mussolini and Churchill in which Churchill was trying to get Italy to stay out of the war. And, he, and supposedly in this correspondence, he offered the island of Malta in return for them staying out. Uh, we don't know the answer to these questions, 
uh, these letters had never been found. But uh, we do know that Churchill went to uh, Malta after the war and spent several months there, which is an odd place to. I mean, yeah. I think, oh, I'm sorry, went to Lake Como up okay. in northern Italy right. Right. Um, for uh, uh, several months after the war, which was kind of weird. They would pick that place to vacation. Uh, some say he went there to look for those letters. Uh, <laughs> some say Mussolini had them with him when he fled north in 1945 in the satchel that disappeared. Nobody really knows, but uh, Cotton Malone gets caught up in that. He does. He does. It's Wow, that was a great blending of, of suspense and, uh, well, and how Mussolini got involved in this. And, uh, of course, Mussolini wants some things in this particular, and, and from Malta and from the, the Knights, right? Yes, I mean, but what Mussolini wanted Malta. I mean, he just wanted the island. The Italians have wanted it for a long time. Yes. And they they considered it theirs, but it never was theirs. It's just, it sits right off the Italian coast, right near Sicily. Mm-hmm. But they just never, they didn't, uh, they've never been able to get it. And they didn't get it in World War II either. Uh, Malta was uh, attacked by the Germans. Uh, more bombs were dropped on Malta than on London. Whoa. But the Maltese held, and the island never fell. But fascinating history there, yes. So you, you mentioned that in your novel as well. And I didn't know it was bombed that much, but uh, wow, that is d- totally remarkable. They had different, de- definitely uh, good uh, good underground tunnels, which you talk about some of that, right? The tunneling? They had, yeah, they had a whole network there that the Knights had dug, and they used those as... Um you know, for safety, and the Maltese took refuge underground, and the whole island was sieged. They had problems with food, they had problems with everything, and they held out, and they uh, they did not fall. And that island, that island stood, and they uh, they received the Saint George Cross from the King of England after it was over. Well, uh, yes, uh, that definitely. So, in in this particular uh, uh, novel, I thought it was fascinating that you. Uh, intertwine some statements made by Pope Francis the First. Yeah, there's a there's a, a statement in the in the epigraph of the of the novel, and it's in the book as well. A very curious statement by Francis. I, I, I'd like to read. You know, the readers can you know pick up the novel and take a look at it. I think they'll be kind of shocked that a pope would say something like that. When he did say it, uh, the Vatican immediately put out other statements, clarifications, counter statements, trying to cloud it up as best they can. But the original statement is is the statement, and it's very fascinating, and it forms the basis of the book itself. Because this book, at its heart, does deal with something interesting from Christianity, something that the readers may not know much about, something I think that's going to surprise and shock them. This is not a book about a secret that's going to destroy the Catholic Church for all time. That's not at all what this book is about. In fact, just the opposite. The last thing in the world any of the characters in this book want to do is destroy the yeah. Catholic Church. It's just it's, it's completely the opposite of that. But it is something with Christianity that has not been touched on as yet in fiction. And I, 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 was, I wanted to, to, to touch on it, and I wanted to deal with it, and I think it's going to be a, a little bit of a shocker for the reader at the end. It, it was a shocker for me, especially you blending in Constantine the Great, the Emperor, right, and Nicaea, and a few other huh? things there about you know being. I think you know that I'm I'm Greek Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, so I, I knew a little bit about that area, and I knew about a little bit about the history, but I learned a little more things about uh, about that, which which, which fascinating to me uh, about uh, everybody knows about the Nicene Creed, and uh, so he talks about that in the particular novel as well. So you yeah, the, go ahead. What happened, you know, in 325 AD in Nicaea, in Turkey, is 
they basically defined what a Christian was as we know it today. Uh, at that time, there were hundreds of versions of Christianity, and they got together and they made one version. And it was a deal they made with Constantine, and it, it, it's all you know historical. And, and everyone, and as I said, most readers may not even understand, may not know that even ever happened. But Constantine wanted his own, his own religion. He wanted a religion he could control. He wanted a religion he could use to control the people, and he chose Christianity. And he fashioned it in his own being, in his own mind, and he put it together. And Pretty much what they created in 325 AD is about 95 percent what it means to still be a Christian today. True, that that is definitely true. But also in your particular book, you bring in you bring in Napoleon and Charlemagne. I thought that was pretty interesting, and you blended those those uh, gentlemen of the past into this particular novel. Yeah, all of that all of that comes together in here and and, and, and joins up as a. There's a there's a thread that runs through this that ties it all together and brings it in. I, I don't want to say too much. I don't want to no, give away the no, plot. I don't, I don't want to give the play. But there's a it's an interesting connection that all of that and and ninety percent of it is true. And that's that was fascinating when I read the editor's notes. Wow, that so I'm I'm enticing you listeners out there. It is it is it is very very fascinating. We're we're going to hold that thought. We're going to come back one more segment to uh, t- talk a little bit more about um, Steve's new book, The Malta Exchange. So we'll be right back with more information. But now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel, proudly presented by Abers and Country of Sri. Your Dodge Chrysler Ram and Jeep dealer. Gary's got more of the best of times coming for you on 710 Kiel. Now, back to the best of times with your host, Gary Coligas. Welcome back to our show, the best of times radio hour, proudly presented by A Bears, Tenant Country of Shreveport, your Dodge Chrysler Ram and Jeep dealer. I'm Gary Coligas, and I do thank you for listening to our show today. Joining me on my show as a special guest is internationally known author, lecturer, and historian, Mr. Steve Barry. And he's discussing his new novel, The Malta Exchange, which has been released to the public and throughout the world. And it's available at bookstores, on Amazon, and on his site, www.steveberry.org. Thank you, Steve, for joining us today here on the Best of Times Radio Hour. Thanks for having me. So let's continue our, our, our little, a little bit enticement discussion about your book. So we're going to have more and more people pick that book up and read it, and either, either via the, all these formats, the digital, the audio, the, the print version. Um, I still like the print version, Steve. I'm, I'm an old, I'm an old guy, so I, I like picking up and holding a book, even though my wife is trying to get me into this digital world. Uh, I still enjoy holding the book and be able to take it to, to bed in my, in my chair. Do you find a lot of people like that? Oh, uh, we, well, I like people who buy hardcovers. Hardcovers are great. Uh, <laughs> e-books are good. Hardcovers are better. We like them. Uh, it's still the, kind of like the gold standard, and it's uh, what everything's judged by. And so, uh, you know, the more hardcovers we can sell, the better. Oh, i got to tell you a quick story. I mean, I'll, Gary has got lots of stories. So I was in, I was in uh, France in November. And I, I should, I'm going to email you this. And there was a, we stopped at a rest stop on one of the, I don't know what they call them in France, interstates, the big highway with the four lanes. And I pulled over and we, we got a snack. And I was fascinated. I saw a whole rack, Steve. I, I'm telling you, a whole rotating rack with all your books. That's pretty cool. And uh, they, France, but, France, France, France brings one of my bigger overseas markets. And it was like, 
amazing. I took a picture of it. I've got it um, somewhere in my phone. And I said, look, look, Tina. I told my wife, look at this. And uh, she says, well, why don't you pick it up? I said, it's all in Fritch. I don't read Fritch. It's, uh, why, why should I take one of these collecting books? I already had the book. And, but it was like, it was fascinating that uh, that it all of a sudden right there in all the books, Steve, in this particular large uh, bookstore, cool. uh, not bookstore, a uh, rest stop, whatever it's called. It was massive. It, you had a, you had a whole rack to yourself. So right. all all your novels were in there. I'm gonna, I think all of them look like it was a big big item. So that's a little. Yeah, all of my books are published in France. As I said, it's probably my largest European market is France. England being not far behind. Poland, Italy. Uh, but France is the number one. So I help you make a sale because the, there's a gentleman, a French gentleman, and I says, I, I didn't speak French, uh, and he he says, uh, you know? I said, very good book. Pick it up. Pick it up. I've already read it. It's excellent. And he says, oh, excellent? Yes. So he picked it up and bought it. So that was like a major quick sale there, Steve. Thank you. So going going back to this particular book, it also involves an interesting, which I've been to the Vatican, and you described the Vatican very explicitly. I mean, wow. You have a lot of action scenes going in there. Yeah, the last hundred pages of the book takes place in the Vatican, because this book, book deals with a conclave. The Pope is dead. A conclave has been called, but a cardinal has fled Rome and headed to Malta. He's after a document from the fourth century that he needs desperately to accomplish what he's after. And that's where Cotton gets caught up in it. And the last hundred pages take place there. But the word exchange in the novel and the title has a meaning. There's a reason why it's called the Malta Exchange. And there's a surprise to the reader coming in, in the novel that comes about three-quarters of the way through the book. And it is and I great. Hope we'll catch, catch, keep, I hope we'll catch people you know, completely off guard. I know when my wife Elizabeth read the manuscript, to, you know, she was the first reader to ever read the manuscript when she was doing her edit on it. it. It caught her by surprise. She didn't see it coming. It caught me by surprise as well. I mean, it is fa- it's fascinating. Great, great thought about this one. Wow, it was it was very good, very good. But again, if no, somebody's never been to the Vatican, this is a great. He describes it in such detail that you can you can feel like you're there. And those of us have been there in various rooms in various areas in the Sistine Chapel and you know, the the other particular hallways. I can't remember all of them. What they're called? Uh, it, it's pretty remarkable. You did a great job in that. You did a great job in describing the action, but describing the scenery and describing all that particular area. But I learned something interesting from your book, which I did find in I think in the editor's notes is I didn't know that the conclaves are. I thought they were the same. You know, back whenever the, the pope was became a pope back in 1035 A.D. I thought it was the conclaves were always done, but in your in your book you mentioned that they could be they were all variable. No, it didn't. It didn't really come. The idea of a conclave that we think of didn't really come around until around the 14th century, and and it wasn't really refined until around the 18th or into the 19th and early 20th century. That as a conclave as we know it today. A lot of people don't know this, but anybody can be pope. I mean, they can pick anybody, uh, but they they have not picked a non-cardinal in like seven hundred years. So seven hundred years. It's Whoa. coming from the cardinals, but they, in theory, can pick any Catholic to become a to become pope. So, um, you know, the, it's it's a fascinating thing to conclave. It's it's very very un-American what they do. They go into a room, close the door, and make some decisions without anyone knowing how or why they do it. Uh, we would not, we would not ever do such a thing. But that's how they select the pope. They do it. It's done in total secrecy. And not only that, you're not allowed to talk about it when you come out. And they don't talk about it when they come out. 
Fascinating, fascinating. No, it wouldn't be. I don't think we we could elect our president of the United States that way, could we? <laughs> well, it'd be interesting if, yeah, if you took the electoral college and put them all in a room and sealed them up and said, "Okay, pick a president." Yeah. You know, and and y'all y'all decide who's going to lead us. No, as I said, the whole concept is somewhat uh, very you know anti you know, American. We don't look at it that way, but it works very well for the church. What I. Uh my son-in-law, by the way, I'm adding side notes here. My son-in-law is a recently United States um, congressman from the state of Texas. Just got elected, and so I got to go to Washington. I'm sure you've been up there a thousand times, but I'm, I'm going to get to go up there more and more lately. But I told Lance, I said, Lance, you know, why don't you introduce a bill that we just randomly select a president from all the 350 million people in the United States? Just make it like a lottery and just pick a president, you know, and then nobody be uh, be just like buying a lottery ticket. He said. Gary. Sometimes you'll get a good one, and yeah. sometimes you won't. Yeah, well, hey, it's you know, just a matter, of, a matter of luck and chance, and you don't have to worry about spending millions of dollars on political campaigns and list all, all the ads, et cetera. So it would be, be an easy way, to, what, be easy way to solve it. That's what happened with the church. The church got a lot of very bad votes for a very, very long time. Oh. And, you know, it just... It just it, it, but the church did what the church always does. It adapted, changed, modified, and eventually set up a system where they now... Cream comes to the top, and they they pick someone, you know, for a specific reason and a specific purpose, who has specific skill sets that they need at that point in time. So tell our listeners a little bit more. Why should they pick up this book if they're with, with their interest? Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to get them get more and more of them out there. It's fun. It's a fun. The idea is to entertain you. If you want to suspend belief, have a little fun, and uh, have a great. A treasure hunt and adventure in some really cool places. This is the book for you. You're gonna you're gonna go up to Lake Como, which is an amazing place of the world. You're gonna learn about Mussolini and some interesting things about his escape from Italy that never made it and where he was shot and killed and why. And then you're gonna come down to Rome with something quite interesting there that still exists there, an obelisk that's still there. You're going to go down to Malta, which is an incredible place, one of the great places of the world. And then you're going to end up in the Vatican. It's got a little bit of everything. And it's a fun fun adventure. I think uh, readers will enjoy it. And you, you also have that, that, that ring. Which what, what's, that, what's that called, the, the lettering that goes up and down and sideways? Oh, the Sator Square. Yes. The, the Sator Square. The Sator Square is a very interesting, it's five words. And you can read them the same up, down, left, right, backwards, forwards. Most fascinating. And it's uh, it's been around a long, long time. I've been wanting to use it in a novel for a long time, and I was able to work it into this book. And you did work it in quite well, quite well in this book. So that's the Malta Exchange. Again, it's available at all the bookstores, online situations, and at, of course, dberry.org. Can you give us a little bit uh, about your plans for the future, future novel? Uh, the next book's finished and turned in. It'll be coming out spring of next year. Cotton's going to head to Poland for an adventure. I've been wanting to send him to Poland for a long time. Oh. It's called the Warsaw Protocol. It deals with something very interesting uh, in Polish history and uh, something very fascinating I think readers are going to like. And uh, it'll be out, as I said, next spring. So the Warsaw Protocol, is. does it date back in the 1600s, 1500s, later day? What, what, uh, was... It goes back in Polish history that far, yes. It also deals with something from the Cold War that's very interesting. It deals with the salt mines that are located there that are very fascinating. And Krakow, which is one of my favorite cities in the world. So, yes, there's a wide range of history. The reader's going to learn a lot about Poland. It's one of my favorite countries in the world. It's an interesting place, and I think you're going to... 
And you're going to go like, wow, I never realized that. That is, is it going to talk about the Siege of Vienna in there? Is that uh, rented no. in there? Not there. No. Uh, okay, but else, the, Polish, the, the Poles helped in saving that particular problem. Uh, I don't know if you recall that in history. I, re- I remember that in history. Well, thank you again, Steve, for joining us today here on the Best of Times Radio Hour. You're fantastic. Again, our listeners need to go to his website to learn more about him and all of his novels to order at steveberry.org. Again, that's steveberry.org. Thank you, Steve, for joining us today. And give my regards to Elizabeth and all your family members. And, again, congratulations on a super, super uh, new novel. Thank you. We'll be right back with more information, but now we're from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel, proudly presented by A Bears, Tenant Country of Shreveport, your Dodge Chrysler Ram and Jeep dealer. Gary's got more of the Best of Times coming for you on 710 Keel. Welcome back to our show, the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel. Thank you for listening to our show today. May God bless you and your family. God bless America. Have a great day and a great weekend. Thank you again for listening to our show. I'm Gary Caligas, wishing you and yours the best of times both today and every day. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Best of Times on 710 Keel. Join us again next Saturday at 9 for the best of times. This is News Radio 710 Keel, K E E L, Shreveport Bossier.